What a great morning of worship together and praising God. You may not know it, but you came on a perfect Sunday to hear about a mystery. Maybe you saw these headlines just a a week or so ago. January 27th, Deep Sea Vision announced that their sonar imaging revealed an anomaly on the floor of the Pacific Ocean's over 16,000 feet deep. In their mind, it resembles a small aircraft. And the team believes that this anomaly could be a Lockheed 10E Electra. That's the 10-passenger plane that Amelia Earhart was flying when she was attempting to circumnavigate the globe and went missing on July 2nd, 1937. Everybody's been searching for this. Well, I say everybody, I haven't, but people have been searching for this for a long time. And Tony Romeo, not Tony Romo, okay? Tony Romeo, who is the CEO of Deep Sea Vision, he's a pilot, he's a former U.S. Air Force intelligence officer. He's quoted as saying this, some people call it one of the greatest mysteries of all time. Where is her plane? I think it actually is the greatest mystery of all time. We have an opportunity to bring closure to one of the greatest American stories ever. Three times in his quote, as short as it was, he mentioned finding her plane, Amelia Earhart's plane, as the greatest mystery. Now, I appreciate his enthusiasm and over discovering what they hope will be her plane. And it's true, it's American mystery, it's part of our lore as a country, but I find it pales in comparison to a timeless worldwide ministry mystery that we have been singing of this morning, where the creator of all things condescended to take on flesh and then not come as a conquering king, but to lay down his life for sinners. In my opinion, the atonement is the greatest mystery of all time. We have been working our way through John's gospel, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 19, verse 16 down through 42. You'll see that on the screens, page 905 in those blue Bibles. If you don't have a Bible on your phone or in your lap, I'd encourage you to open that, because when we go through God's Word here, as our normal pattern is, we read the text, we think about the text, we talk about what it means, and we make application, you will be greatly helped by having a copy of the Scriptures in front of you. So you're not just hearing what I'm saying, you're reading it on the page. And so I encourage you to to take advantage of those Bibles in the chairs around you. And if you don't own a Bible, hey, it's a gift. You're not stealing from the church. We're giving one to you. Take it home with you today. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written with a unique purpose. And no one Gospel contains all of the facts of what happened in Jesus' life, all the details that took place on his crucifixion. Even if you were to take all four Gospels and mash them all together, you would not have a complete picture. John himself says as much in chapter 21 and verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, 
I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So our goal in working through this passage today is not to harmonize what John says along with the other gospel writers about Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection, or burial. Instead, we intend to focus on what John is saying, and our goal is to understand the purpose that he's trying to make, the, the goal he's trying to lead his reader to embrace. Now, we're going to work at it this way. You, you've got headings in your Bible, no doubt, and they talk about uh, Jesus's death, uh, his crucifixion. They might speak about his side being pierced, his little headings, his burial. And while those headings are good and helpful, I want us to think about this as like two halves of a one coin. So on one side, we have all these facts that John is very deliberate and carefully records all of these facts about Jesus' death. On the other side of the coin, we get an interpretation of the significance of this death. It's, he's crucified with two other criminals. We've got a cross, uh, three of them over here in the corner of the parking lot that shows three crosses. Jesus wasn't the only one who was killed that day. So we don't want to just rehearse the facts. We want to understand also the significance of these facts. And so we're going to look at the facts first. I'm going to give us a, a flyover of the passage. In verses 16 through 18, we read that Jesus is crucified. Let me get to my place since I'm on the wrong page. I apologize. <clears throat> so they took Jesus. They delivered him over uh, He, being Pilate, delivered him over to them, the soldiers, to be crucified. And they took Jesus. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place uh, place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So we're given a location This place outside of the city of Jerusalem, commonly known as the place of the skull, or in Aramaic, which was the language of the Hebrews at that time, it was called Golgotha. We're also told that Jesus was crucified with two other men in verse 18. Now, history tells us that the vertical beam, that upright post that someone would be crucified on, would have already been placed at the site of the crucifixion. The victim, as we read carries the crossbeam out on their shoulders. They would carry it outside to the city, to the place of their crucifixion. Along the way, they might be harassed and slapped and beaten and hit by the crowds. People would mock them and mistreat them. And there, when they arrived at the place of the crucifixion, the soldiers would attach the victim to that crossbeam, either by tying their arms up to it or by nailing the person to the beam. And then those soldiers would host that beam up and they would fasten it to the post. If you go back to verse 14 of John 19, John tells us that this was also the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. Are you hearing, John, what he's saying here? He has established for all his readers the day, the time, the location, and circumstances of the events surrounding this. 
He wants his readers to be very clear what he's talking about. This is not just some made-up thing. This is verifiable. You can go ask. There are records. Looking at verses 19 through 24, let's continue reading. We're told that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather the man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered them, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Do the math, right, kids? One, one divided by four is... Well, see, tricked you. That's why I don't do the books here, right? Praise the Lord for financial wizards. Four divided by one is four. So there must have been four dudes there that are taking Jesus' clothes. And also, we're told, his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. We see in this portion of John's writing, Jesus' humiliation. He has now been crucified, but it doesn't stop there. Those who hated him are relentless in their pursuit to see him disgraced. It's customary for the charges against the condemned to be attached to the cross for all to read. And as this was outside the city of Jerusalem, it was written in three languages so that the Jews could read it in Aramaic. The Greeks could read Greek. And the Romans could read Latin. Everybody would see it in their own tongue. And so, instead of listing the charges, though, Pilate does something quite unexpected. He gives Jesus this inscription that he is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, this infuriated the chief priests. They demand Pilate, don't say that. Instead, say this. You don't say he is the king of Jews, but that he said he was. Yet Pilate refused to change. And next we see the few further indignities Jesus experienced History confirms what John records here. Not only was crucifixion an agonizing death, it was absolutely humiliating. You see, the person would be stripped totally naked before they were attached to the cross, and Jesus was no exception. For all the world to see a naked man hanging on this tree, and the soldiers are dividing up his clothing as the spoils of their work. He's not going to need them anymore, and so they're going to take something from this. Unbeknownst to them, they fulfilled something that had been predicted centuries before. What is that mystery? Well, come back tonight and you'll hear Ken Schaefer as he opens God's Word from Psalm 22 in verse 16 and shows us how the Scripture foretold this most seemingly insignificant of details. 
Notice also Jesus in his agony and in his humiliation. He's still aware of what's going on around him. We're told in verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's code for John, the writer of this gospel, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. In Luke's gospel, as Jesus and Mary, in a completely different setting, a joyful setting, presenting the baby Christ at the temple after the days were fulfilled, they received an unexpected prophetic message from the prophet Simeon. He comes to them, this man who was old and well advanced in years, who loved the Lord and was looking forward to God's return. He speaks to them and he says, behold, this child is a sign that will be opposed. And he turns to Mary and the sword will pierce through your own soul also. On that day, both prophecies were fulfilled. We have seen it as we've worked our way through the gospel. Jesus is repeatedly opposed by those who hate God's kingdom and hate the work of regeneration that Jesus brings in with his gospel. And in fact, even Mary watching her own son being so mistreated, suffering, no doubt her heart is breaking But Jesus, seeing his mother and John standing together, he addressed them. It's likely that his brothers were not in Jerusalem at this time. And Jesus, as the oldest, is responsible to secure his mother's future and his care. And he is concerned about her even as he is dying. As we saw back in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, Jesus' use of the term woman was not cold and unfeeling. It's a term of respect and tenderness. And in spite of his great agony, here's Jesus loving his mother, proving a faithful son to the very end. That day, we're told, John took Mary into his home. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross, uh, on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once 
there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. We see Jesus' death here. Verse 30 tells us that He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. And we see yet again the hypocrisy of these men who were so fastidious about keeping themselves pure. They refused to go into Pilate's house, to his headquarters, to lay out the charges against Jesus. They wanted to stand outside so that they wouldn't defile themselves. And yet, once again, they're concerned about lesser things than weightier things. And they say the land will be defiled if there are bodies on the cross. We must hasten this process. They must be dead and they must come down before sundown. In keeping with Deuteronomy, they were afraid to defile the land. They had no concerns about committing murder, though. A crucified person was hung up by their arms, as I've already said. And by supporting all your weight by your arms... It's very difficult to breathe. I'm not saying that to be funny. I got something in my throat. So often, that vertical beam would have a small platform at just the right height where someone could push off a little bit, just enough to get a little bit of air in their lungs. And you might think, well, this is some great act of mercy. I mean, they're going to crucify a guy. They're, they're giving him a little bit of leeway to get some air in his lungs. No, 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 no. Friend, this is no mercy. This is strategically designed because the will to live is so powerful. It only prolongs the suffering of the one who is crucified. You see, if they can't breathe, they will suffocate eventually. But we want them to suffer And so we'll give them just enough leverage that they can raise up and get just enough air in their lungs to just make it for a few more minutes. John tells us that the soldiers broke both criminals' legs to hasten their deaths, but when they came to Jesus, they discovered he was already dead. Instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and Jesus' punctured lung emptied itself of blood and water. Let's continue reading. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So we've seen that the Jews are concerned about 
bodies, the men hanging on the tree after sundown. They asked that the soldiers would dispatch of them more quickly, break their legs. Not only did they have to die quickly, but they had to be taken down quickly. And what's interesting about the Romans is when they were crucifying non-Romans, because that was only a capital crime for non-Romans, the bodies would remain on the cross until the birds or the ravages of time destroyed the corpse. Or, if they needed that cross again for another, that body was taken off and just thrown in an open dump. Interestingly, that dump was not far from this place of Jesus' crucifixion, where garbage was burned day and night outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was the place called Gehenna. Jesus would use the analogy of the stench and the smell and the flames and the fire that never goes out to preach about hell. And here is Jesus almost going to be cast on the ash heap of Jerusalem, except for a couple secret disciples decided to step out of the shadows and ask for Jesus' body. Pilate granted Joseph the body, and John tells us that the two men who had been secret followers are now coming forth to care for Jesus' corpse and to bury him according to the custom of the Jews. Nicodemus even provides 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to anoint the body and to wrap him and clothe him in the grave claws. Now what's interesting here, compared to Matthew 27 and verse 16, this new tomb that just happens to be so close by, there's a garden right next to Golgotha, and in that garden is a brand new fresh tomb no one had been laid in. Well, Matthew tells us that it was Joseph's tomb. He had made preparations for his own death, and he willingly gave this tomb to Jesus. We've worked through the text. The one side of the coin is done. These are the facts. Now let's take a few minutes, and let's see how the mystery of what has taken place here opens up to us. There are two declarations in this passage that show us, that tell us the significance of these events. Why was Jesus singled out versus the other two criminals? Why isn't there a long biographical account of their lives? Why wasn't there some family tree that can still be found that shows this was the day that they were killed? And why, why aren't we talking about their story? What makes Jesus so special? Well, these two declarations help us. The first is Jesus' declaration in verse 30 by saying three little words that have eternal consequences. It is finished. And then in John's own words, he makes a declaration in verse 35. I saw these things. I'm bearing witness to these things so that you also will believe. So what does Jesus refer to when he says it is finished? Let's be clear. He's not saying... Mom, I disappointed you. Came up short. He's not saying, 
I tried my best, but Rome caught me in the end. It's not like a Bonnie and Collide or Thelma and Louise kind of thing going out in a blaze of glory. No, Jesus dies a criminal's death. And all of the horror and all of the shame that accompanied it. Jesus isn't saying, disciples, I've done my part. Take all that you've heard from me and I hope that you can keep the dream alive. No. What was finished? What truth was Jesus bearing witness to as he spoke to Pilate earlier in the chapter? I came for this purpose to bear witness to the truth. What is it that Jesus is speaking of? Well, we're helped by the context. Uh, We've talked about this rush to crucify, rush to kill, and a rush to take down. Why was that? Because the day was a Sabbath, but it was no ordinary Sabbath. It was the time of the year of the Jewish calendar where they were beginning this annual feast of Passover. And what is Passover? But a reenactment of the commemoration. It is a visual remembrance of God's great deliverance of Israel from in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so they were, as this Lamb of God is being hung on the tree, in the city thousands of lambs are being slaughtered. And their blood is being poured out on the altar as a sacrifice Jesus is showing us that God, in the, in the deliverance of, Egypt, of Israel from Egypt, during the Passover, God spoke these words that every family who took this lamb without blemish and without any defect and slaughtered it, and they painted the doorframe with its blood, that that family would be saved from the angel of death that God was going to use to judge the nation of Egypt. It was the final uh, tactic that God used to humble Pharaoh. What do we read in Isaiah 53? I'd encourage you to turn there with me. We don't, I didn't write down the page number. I'm sorry about that. So if you're not familiar with how a Bible works, maybe someone would be gracious enough near you to help you find it. But hear these words from Isaiah 53 and see how they connect to the text that we're working through today. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is one as from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Naked, beaten, bloody Jesus, bare for all to see. And the horror of it was so great that many couldn't even look at him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's what these chief priests were saying, as the other gospel writers make clear. You saved others, save yourself. Hey, you could do all these things, Jesus. We're just giving you an opportunity to show everybody who you really are. But... Isaiah goes on to say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
Again, he continues in verse 7. See what he says? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Which of them worried that he was stricken for the transgression of the people? And they made his grave with the wicked. He's crucified. He dies on a tree. For a short time, Jesus' grave was a cross. And with a rich man in his death. Speaking of Joseph's tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. All these things happened to Jesus ironically, coincidentally. At the same time, all the nation of Israel is celebrating Passover, that shadow of a greater fulfillment that Jesus filled up with his own life and death, with his gift of life to those who look and trust in him. Are you beginning to see the significance of the timing of Jesus' death? Are you beginning to see why John took such pains to tell us it was the day of preparation before the Passover? It was at it was the sixth hour, and this is where it took place outside of the city. And there were witnesses, both of the men who were crucified with Jesus and those who stood around him and watched. This feast is a shadow. It's pointing to a greater salvation. And the men... The men are more concerned about the shadow than the substance of the one it's pointing to. A friend, may that not be who you are. We see, we see hypocrisy just laid bare in this text. Don't let that be you. Who are more concerned about how the people around you might view you than you are your own standing with God who are more concerned about just dealing with this stuff and you really long for the stuff of the world. This Passover lamb had to be without blemish or defect. And what does Pilate say three times about Jesus? Not guilty. No defect. Without blemish. Friends, what God did in the crucifixion was a shocking answer to Jesus' prayer just a couple chapters early when he prayed that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It was the ultimate Exodus event through which the tyrant was defeated. And the tyrant wasn't the Jewish leaders, it wasn't Rome. What was defeated? It was sin and death. And God's people have not finally been set free and given their fresh vocation. God's presence was established in their midst in a completely new way for which the temple itself was just another shadow of a greater temple. This church of blood-bought people 
is the new temple that God is creating. It is the place where he will reside in the hearts of human beings, guiding them, teaching them his attitudes, his aspirations, giving them new desires, and helping them to say no to the old. When Jesus declared it is finished, here's what he's saying. My work is done. My mission is complete. What the Father has sent me to do, I have done. And what is it that he has done? He's atoned for the sins of all who trust in him. This echoes what we read at the end of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. On the end of that sixth day, remember, when God had completed all his work? It's very good. It's done. And here in John 19.30, Jesus' finished work is much more than just, just the small but not insignificant thing of saving people. God, through Christ, is rescuing all of creation. You see, this world that is cursed with storms and natural disasters and disease and wars, it is all going to be remade new one day, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God will dwell in the midst of his people, not in shadows, not in clouds and vapors and behind curtains, but we will see him face to face in all his glory. In Isaiah 53, we see that this new kingdom, this new creation can now come because Jesus has laid down his life. And we are told in Isaiah 53 in verses 10 through 12 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was not accidental. God himself put Jesus to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, speaking of Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. You know, there are so many beautiful facets to the atonement. Some churches don't want to talk about the blood of Christ and why we had to be washed in the blood. Why a a sacrifice has to be made. Why can't we just buy our way to heaven? Why can't we just do enough good to kind of somehow move the scales a little bit more in our favor? No, there has to be a life given to rescue a life that is condemned. And Jesus gave his life. We don't shrink back from that. Listen to to these words uh, in the book, The Incomparable Christ by J. Oswald Sander. It's just a beautiful book of all these vignettes of the life and the work and the ministry of Christ. He just wants to hold up Jesus for us to marvel at his beauty and his glory. He says this about the atonement. It is moral in character because it originates in God, whose love is unselfish and just. The atonement is not child abuse. God did not abuse His Son like some parents abuse their children. Although God did judge us in His Son, Jesus willingly did this in order to save us. Are you beginning to see how deep the Father's love for us 
that he would lay this on his own son. Even on my kids' worst days, I wouldn't trade them for you. I couldn't. The atonement is also presented in financial terms as a ransom paid freeing sinners from the slavery of sin. But it doesn't just stop with a moral character and a financial thing of balances, debts owed and and surplus and income and and clearing off a ledger. It also has a legal significance because Jesus' death was an act of obedience to the law. The same law that sinful people had violated, Jesus kept all of it. But it's also medicinal in its nature. It's curative. It's restorative. The atonement, you see, the medical world uses the term palliative care. It describes helping people with a serious illness deal with the pain that accompanies that illness. But palliative care does nothing to address the illness itself. It's just making you comfortable. But the atonement is the cure. It is the cure for the universal and hereditary disease of sin that we pass down to our children and our children will pass down to their children. Finally, Sanders says this, the atonement is sacrificial in nature. And man, do we see this in Jesus? I mean, the irony of the Passover season and He is the Passover Lamb And yet, simultaneously, he is also the high priest who's interceding. He does it with Mary. John, take care of my mom. He does it on the cross when he says, it is finished. All who look at Jesus and believe that he atoned for their sins will be saved. He's a high priest at the same time he is the sacrifice. This blows one's mind. And then it goes even further, the fact that He is divine God of God. The one that Hebrews says spoke into creation all those things that exist. One that John begins his gospel prologue with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That God would do this for us. How is it if our sins have been atoned, how, how do we deal with ongoing sin? What, what then is our responsibility as a Christian seeking daily forgiveness? Why do we do that? Why does 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do we need to confess sins if everything's been atoned for at the cross? Well, it's not because the atonement of Christ is worn off. It's not because it's gotten tired and have been exhausted by our sin and now we find ourselves once again under God's wrath. No, 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 no. God's covenant grace cannot be broken. And the assurance of atonement is a permanent covenant. And this is what enables us boldly to come to the throne of grace. That there is no shadow of turning with our God. He's not squinting at us. Not like us as parents where our kids have wronged us. They've wronged a brother or a sister. And we're kind of annoyed with them. And they kind of tiptoe in our room. Try to snuggle up and sweeten us up a little bit before. There's none of this with God. 
He invites us to come. Why? Because it is finished. What Jesus did on the cross is He atoned for the sins of those who believe in Him, both past and future. There is no limit to His grace. But the doctrine of atonement is not a license to sin. Paul, he destroyed any notion that Christians can sin so that they might actually help God's grace you know, be seen by other people. Or that sinning is okay. If you look at Romans 6, Paul says absolutely not. The Spirit of God speaks to every believer in every generation and he tells us that we who were once slaves to sin have now become slaves to righteousness. That's what we're supposed to be about. It's true that we need daily cleansing from sin and perhaps even hourly. Yet that cleansing is not the result of new grace but the grace that Jesus purchased and finished on that cross. Again, the words, it is finished, settle it for all eternity. So Christian, rest in what God has finished for you. Some of us are so fearful. We, we believe we need to contribute to our salvation. We, we, we need to add to the righteousness. We need to make God like us. Or we're afraid that because we're struggling with sin, that God has turned from us and He is no longer pleased with us. It is finished. Jesus' words, He paid it all. There's now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8. No works done by us will ever merit any more favor from God, nor does God hold back a pinch of wrath from Jesus meant for us. He's just waiting for us to fall out of line and then He's going to zap us. We must not listen to the lies of the enemy either. You see, the accuser of the brethren will look for everything in your life that he can bring up against you. And know this, Jesus said it, so I'm not making this up. Anything that Satan can bring up to condemn you with, Jesus has said it is finished. All the atonement that's necessary has been dealt with. Rest in that, Christian. He rejoice and worship the one who died for you. God did this while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He found us in the miry pit and he plucked us out of it. Praise his name. James Denny says this, that our relation to God is not determined now in the very least by sin or law. It is determined by Christ the propitiation, and by faith. He goes on to write, the position of the believer is not that of one who is trembling at the judgment seat or of one for whom everything remains somehow in a condition of suspense. It's, it's that of one who has the assurance of divine love which has gone deeper than all his sins and has taken on itself the responsibility of them and the responsibility of delivering him from them. 
with nothing left to do, Jesus gave up his spirit. He said he had power to lay down his life that he may take it up again in chapter 10. His mission is complete. And when the work of atonement was done, Jesus made the decision to dismiss his spirit. Which is why in, in, your, in your bulletin, you should have seen this little handout. There is this song that we sang already. It is finished upon the cross. I wanted you to see this because these words are so powerful. This is why we can sing this because of what Jesus has done. How I love the voice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He declares His work is finished. He has spoken this hope to me. Is that your reality? If God has indeed atoned for your sins through Christ, let that become the fuel for your sanctification. You see, Jesus lived always with an eye to the cross. This knowledge that He was going to die that way led Him, and it, it, it directed His steps, whether, uh, whether it was about righteousness all by Himself, or whether it was about righteousness when He was interacting with the poor, the sick, the outcasts his own family, his enemies, his own disciples. He knew what was required in life and death. He lived a life in order to make atonement for sinners. Friend, you can't do that. Praise God that Jesus can, and he did what we never could. Yet the, the same loving Jesus, who secured his mother's future, laid down his life to secure our future. All who believe in Him. And the Scriptures tell us that the one who is forgiven much loves much in Luke 7. The one has removed, who has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, what is Jesus doing now? He is calling us to embrace His attitudes, His desires, and actions. And so, we must not shrink back from the fact that while the atonement means we don't work for righteousness, we are called to live holy lives. To live with Jesus in mind, not as a burden, but what it's intended to be. It's a ballast. A ship needs a weight in the hull in order to keep that ship upright in storms. When you need a compass that is pointed to true north so that no matter how dark it is outside, no matter how the hills cloud out the skyline, that you always know where you are going. Are you keeping your eyes on Jesus? I believe if we do this, it will reshape our lives, whether we're single or married. It will reshape our lives whether we are a child or a parent. Whether we are working or we're tired, looking to Jesus will reshape your view of neighboring and hospitality, of serving in the local church, this church, and our community. I encourage you to gaze upon Jesus and talk about Him, even today over lunch with your friends and your family. Very quickly, we look at John's declaration. His testimony is true, he says in verse 35, so we should believe Him. He he highlights four fulfillments of Scripture. In verse 24, there's the casting of, law, of lots for Jesus' clothes, which is spoken of in Psalm 22, 18. He reminds us of the sour wine that Jesus drank as a fulfillment of verse 29 in Isaiah 69, verse 21. 
that Jesus' bones were not broken according to the custom of the Passover lamb. None of its bones could be broken according to the law in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. That Jesus' side was pierced, and they looked upon Him whom they pierced. We see that in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. It's also spoken of in Revelation. What is John trying to do? He's trying to convince us that these things about Jesus are true. He's much more than a pretender to the throne. He is the Savior, and He fulfilled even the most obscure passages in the Old Testament to show us that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. Friend, I encourage you to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Look to Him and live. Look at the one whom God has poured out His wrath upon for you and humble yourself and pray. Pray for this salvation, for this grace to be given to you. Jesus' real enemy that He was defeating was was sin and death. We've all worshipped idols that were not divine. We've all failed to reflect God's image in the world. And so we are all subject to corruption and death. And when Satan accuses us of this, he is absolutely right. But the accuser is wrong to think that this is our Creator's last word on the subject. He's declared it is finished. God knows it's impossible for you and I to save ourselves, that holiness and righteousness are beyond our reach. There's no better proof than this than the people that God chose out of all the nations, one guy to make a family from, and He did all these good things for him. He gave them His laws. He lived in their midst. His glory was there like a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. God gave them such access to Him. And yet, they turned from Him and followed worthless idols. Hosea says this, when Israel was a child, he's quoting God here, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the boughs and burning offerings to idols. Is that how you've been living? The nations of the earth are no better. So why does God continue to show mercy to any of us? Because of the glory of His name. He intends to keep every promise. That He will be true and every man can be a liar. He's made His promises to sinners with His eyes wide open, knowing what you will do. And yet, God is determined to keep His promise that it is finished in Christ. And He showed this mercy by doing nothing less than sending His own Son. We started with an anomaly on the ocean floor that has excited many people of the hopes that it is the long-lost plane of Amelia Earhart. But at this point, it's all speculation. Any of you going down 16,000 feet, dig around and see what it is? This is a mystery that has captivated the attention of many, but in contrast to this speculation of what could be, or what might just be a pile of rocks covered by mud, we have Jesus and John telling us the truth about the greatest mystery, that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And John, all he cares about is that his readers believe, that they see these things are impossible to construct, to fabricate in order to perpetuate a lie that is going to do nobody any good. And let's be clear, all these guys that wrote the Bible, they're all dead, and most of them died horrible deaths for this faith. What do they gain from perpetuating this lie? No, John, he believes it, and he wants us to believe it. I'd like to close with these words from F.W.H. Myers. Again, bringing your attention to that handout. The one with the song? Flip it over to the other side. You should read this more than just now. What does it say? It says the cross is not a compromise, but a substitution. Not a cancellation, but a satisfaction. Not a wiping off, but a wiping out. In blood and agony and death, thus mercy does not cheat justice. This hath he done, and shall we not adore him? This shall he do, and can we still despair? Come, let us quickly fling ourselves before him, cast at his feet the burden of our care. Father, we pray that those who are in doubt that their sins can be forgiven will experience the transforming power of Jesus, the power that can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. And we pray for faith, faith in you by all who are being tested, that your children may watch and pray and find in Jesus their all in all. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me? And let's praise the one who paid our debt as we sing, Jesus paid it all. And if you have questions about this, if God is stirring your heart, not, not sensationalism by anything that's been done here, let's talk. This is what we're here to do. We want you to know and rejoice in the atonement, the knowledge that it is finished in Christ.